Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from the evil, from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the Christian spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The word of the Lord. Well, it's Mother's Day, as you know. The day when we try to remind the mothers in our lives that they don't have to be mothers on this one day of the year. (laughs) Try and help them actually forget what it's like to be a mother the rest of the year and give them a little break with breakfast in bed and brunches and the like. Uh, No, in truth, it's a day when we reflect on the gift of motherhood to the world and the gift of life that we've all received from our mothers. We all have that in common. Every one of us came into this world by way of our mother's pregnancy and labor, and so we are remembering that on this day and saying, thanks, Mom. Now, (laughs) I know that uh, this can actually be a quite painful day for many people. Uh, It could be a painful day for people that are estranged from their mothers or may have some strained relationship with their mother. It can be a painful day for those who may have never known their mother. Uh, Likewise, it can be a painful day for mothers who feel some tension with their children. Perhaps they've been even rejected by their own children. Uh, Likewise, mothers who feel some semblance of guilt or shame 
for a way or many ways, in fact, that they have failed their children or perhaps even are presently failing their children. It can also be painful for many women who have a strong desire to be mothers and yet for whatever reason that has not materialized, whether just the circumstances of life or some issues with fertility, whatever it may be. Holidays like Mother's Day, where we zoom in and highlight some particular aspect of God's goodness or God's blessing, are always painful for those who feel that they are somehow lacking in the fullness of that blessing. Those who feel that God is somehow withholding some good from them in experiencing the richness of that blessing. It provokes questions. Holidays like this provoke questions like why this suffering? Why this lack? Or why me? What is it about me that deserves this particular goodness being withheld? And those kinds of questions are not unique, of course, to mothers, nor are they unique to Mother's Day. Every one of us who experiences pain or lack of any kind automatically runs to those kinds of questions. We automatically start asking, what have I done to deserve this? That's our default nature. We are, all of us, kind of automatically, inherently in our broken, fallen humanity, credit junkies. That is to say that we take the credit for what is happening in our lives, both for the successes of our lives and for the pains of our lives. We automatically do this. Even now as I'm talking about it, I'm just remembering last night, it was a warm summer, beautiful night. My kids went across the street to an elderly couple that are our neighbors there, and they were talking and having a good time with the neighbors. And then Bodhi came running back across the street, showing us that he had received a chocolate chip granola bar from our neighbors. And as he ripped it open to gorge himself, what did he say? He said, I think they gave it to us because we're so good at talking. <laughs> and Akasha said, no, I think they gave it to you because they're really nice people, right? But even at four years old, there's this automatic impulse, automatic assumption that we deserve credit for what's happening in our lives, that we're somehow the author of our own story or at least dictating to the author in some way how it is that our story is playing out. Why do we do that? Why do we want the credit so badly? There's probably a lot of answers to that question, but I think maybe at the most fundamental level, there's a kind of comfort or security in the coherence that that gives to our lives. In other words, it makes our life make sense. If I'm responsible, if I get the credit for the successes and the pains in my life, 
then I always know why I am where I am. I never have to wonder. I can always draw a straight line between my successes yielding sweet outcomes and my failures yielding harsh pains. And it gives me some semblance of control, or at least perceived control, that I'm in charge here, that I'm running the show, that I'm telling my own story. We can find warrant for this when we go looking for it in the scriptures. So this is our automatic default way of thinking and being. And so when we open the Bible, we start looking for it. We read according to that default lens. And when we do, we read all kinds of texts that seem to be suggesting that very thing, that we should claim the credit for the successes and pains in our lives. We read in the Psalms, Psalm 34. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. King David wrote that section of Psalm 34 on the heels of having feigned insanity in front of a neighboring king, King Ashish, also known here as King Abimelech, same king. He feigned insanity to escape some perceived danger, and he got out of that perceived danger. And so he's writing this psalm when he's feeling good. He's feeling like the Lord is blessing him, the Lord is protecting him, the Lord is telling a good story about his life. And so he is testifying to these promises of God that are full, laden with promise of blessing and protection and deliverance. He goes on, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. What are we to make of that on Mother's Day? What are mothers to make of that who feel estranged from their children? Women who so desperately want to be mothers and can't find their way into that stage of life for whatever reason. What are we to make of this other than to confirm our suspicion, our default assumption that somehow we are not doing this faith thing correctly when we find ourselves in the hardship of life? I must not be fearing God right. Or on the flip side, if you are wonderfully blessed with a wonderful mother or wonderfully blessed as a wonderful mother to wonderful children, you'd have to conclude, well, I must be 
getting this fear of the Lord right. The scriptures seem to indicate that. Testify to it. Psalm 91 says similarly, Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. There you have it. Those who get this faith stuff right have protection, have no lack, no evil befalls them. It says it plain as day there, it seems, in Psalm 91. Likewise, Psalm 34, which we read in its entirety a moment ago. Those who fear the Lord lack no good thing. This kind of language is everywhere in the Psalms. Psalm 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Seems to be saying if you get the fear of the Lord right, then life goes better. Then life goes good, even. Life is easy. You avoid pain and hardship. It's really easy to read those words in that way, isn't it? Do you read the Bible that way? Of course you do. I read the Bible that way, especially when I'm not reading it. (laughs) Because when I'm reading it, I'm on guard, right? But this is the default theology of my mind and heart. And it's confirmed by all types of scriptures that are floating around in my brain. The trouble is, in order to preserve that way of thinking, that default assumption about how the, way, how the world works, you actually have to stop reading pretty quickly, which we're quite good at. Right? We love to read the Bible in little snippets, coffee mugs and T-shirts and whatever can stick in our memory automatically. But if you keep reading the Bible for any stretch of time, no matter where you begin, as you cross one of these passages that seems to be indicating this sort of karmic reality about life, if you just keep reading a little while longer, you will certainly begin to discover texts that throw wrenches into your default junkie credit way of thinking and being. The scripture will start to unravel that way of thinking and living. It's almost like it meets us where we expect it to, sucks us in, and then starts to destroy all that we have brought to the table, all the presuppositions, all the assumptions that we've brought with us. We just read in Psalm 34 these texts about those who fear God lacking no good thing. But then verse 11 of Psalm 34 Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. 
Okay, that's a clue. Ah, so there's something to be taught here. There's something that I don't know automatically. It's hard to learn things. And it gets harder the longer you live, actually. Because inherent in every act of learning is the admission of ignorance. Every time you learn something, you are implicitly acknowledging that all the decisions I have made heretofore were made without the benefit of that new knowledge and therefore probably really misguided and foolish. Every time you learn something, you're admitting that the past version of me was a fool. That's hard to do. It's really hard to learn new things. It becomes increasingly difficult as we become more entrenched over the course of our lives. But God here has something to teach us. David says, listen, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. It's so tempting when we do learn something, when someone does teach us something, it's so tempting to either outright say, oh, I, I know, I already know that as we rush and scramble to then to filter that little bit of new knowledge into all of our preceding decisions and make sense of how it is that we made those decisions with that knowledge, as opposed to apart from it. We love to pretend that we already know all things, that we are already wise. But this thing that God has to teach us here, the longer that I'm a pastor, I'm more I'm convinced that it actually takes our entire lives for him to teach it to us. That is to say, we'll never know it in this life. We'll only glimpse it at times, like through a really dark window, and then forget it again and have to learn it all over again. And that is this fear of the Lord. And what the fear of the Lord is. Here in this psalm, David has glimpsed it. And so it's like he's capturing it on the page before it dances on back out of his head. And he says this in Psalm 34, starting in verse 12. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Okay, so David just got done telling us, just got through telling us that those who fear the Lord will lack no good thing. And now he sets out he starts to define what the fear of the Lord is to us. He says, turn your tongue from evil. Don't speak lies. Turn your whole person from doing evil. Do good. Seek peace. Pursue it. 
Anybody learned anything yet? Me either. You got to keep reading. This beginning of the definition of fearing the Lord, I think is the definition that we come into the scriptures with. But if you keep reading, David then throws a wrench in everything. Psalm 34, verses 18 through 20. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Wait. So the definition of lacking no good thing, then, includes things like brokenheartedness, being crushed in spirit, includes many afflictions. Many afflictions befall the righteous. How can this be? Didn't David just tell us that those who fear the Lord, those who look to him, those who trust him, no evil will befall them? That they'll lack no good thing? You say, man, I thought I was in control. I thought that I could put in my faith, deposit my faith in God, put my fear in God, trust God, and that that would yield to me a manageable life, that would yield to me a good life, a blessed life, a life where my mother loves me and I love my mother. And if I want it, I get to be a mother the life that I'm longing for. This section of Psalm 34, verses 18 through 20, and actually the verses right around it, it's like a giant grenade that gets dropped into our nice, fuzzy, coherent life story. The way that we make sense of our world gets blown up of course, this happens repeatedly as you read the scriptures. And something more than that happens, too, in this little section, verses 18 through 20. Because that bit at the end about all the bones remaining whole, God preserving all of the bones of his righteous, none of the bones being broken, some of you likely know where that is fulfilled in the New Testament, where this psalm, and specifically this section of this psalm, is quoted in the New Testament. It's in John's Gospel, chapter 19, in the verses immediately following the brutal death of the Lord Jesus by way of crucifixion. In other words, the 
No evil will befall you. Talk of Psalm 34 can include things like the agony of a crucifixion. The lack no good thing talk of Psalm 91, of Psalm 111, of so many other psalms can include the brutal and humiliating shame of being abandoned and murdered, falsely accused and crushed. And so our obvious question then is, what good are the promises of God? What good is all this talk of no evil befalling you, of lacking no good thing, if somehow included in the definition of that can be a crucifixion? What good is that? to a mom when she loses a child prematurely? What good is it to a mom when her children reject her, accuse her of failing them? What good is it to a child when your mother, the person who is supposed to be the safest in all the world, abandons you or abuses you or wrongs you in some terrible way? What good is it to those of you who long to be parents And yet, for whatever reason, that good thing is not given. What good are these promises of God when the cross shows up in our lives? There's a um, dwarf peach tree in my front courtyard, (laughs) as many of you know. I think I talk about it about once a year. You'll let me know if it's more often than that. <laughs> we bought it five years ago. I like talking about it because you only get to see the story of a peach tree play out seasonally or even annually. It's hard to look at it week by week. It doesn't really tell you anything. But the first spring that we bought that peach tree and planted it in the ground. We didn't really know what to expect. And we were delighted when it gave us about a dozen peaches right out of the chute. And we made peach cobbler. And I gained six pounds. (laughs) And all was right with the world. And then the next year, the tree didn't give us any fruit, inexplicably. But it gave us a lot of leafy green. Lots of signs of life on that little peach tree. My wife and I like to sit out front and have date night in, as we call it, on Sunday evenings. And get takeout. And it's really nice when there's a full leafy tree sitting right next to you there, rustling in the summer breeze. And then the third spring... We were excited because there was evidence that it was going to be our biggest yield yet. There were all these little green peachlings promising to grow up and become peaches. 
And I bought some bigger pants in anticipation. Cut a new hole in the old belt. (laughs) And then we went on vacation, and we came back, and all the peaches were gone, inexplicably, with one little bit of evidence as to what may have happened. A half-eaten, not-quite-ripe peach was lying out in the grass outside the gate in front of a person's house with the initials Oz <laughs> But since this is America and we are innocent until proven guilty, I'm not holding a grudge until he can fight back. (laughs) And then last year was the most amazing year yet because this incredible yield came out of this little tree. I mean, this is a dwarf peach tree. It's about as high as this podium. And there were hundreds, dozens, hundreds, close to hundreds, My wife looks down every time I tell the story. There was a lot of peaches on this tree. Too many, actually, for the tree to support. And as they started to mature, the tree actually fell over at one point. Because of the weight of the peaches on this tree. Amazing year. Amazing yield. We stood the tree back up and hoped for the best this year. Well, this year rolled around. March came, and March went, and there was no sign of any budding on the tree whatsoever. And then it was April, and not a single sprout of any kind. And now we're in May, and there's not even a single leaf on our little dwarf peach tree. It is a gangly, mangled collection of sticks prominently featured (laughs) in my front courtyard it's actually a little bit embarrassing because I'm sure that passers-by are convinced of something that's true but I would rather them not know which is that we're terrible gardeners (laughs) and kill just about everything that we try to grow But no one knew that for like four years, and I'd like to preserve that illusion. Anyway, I did some research, and it turns out that for dwarf peach trees, this is actually a rather common phenomenon immediately following unusually mild winters. A dwarf peach tree has to endure something close to a thousand hours of chill in order to break its dormancy when spring rolls around. If the winter is too warm, the tree can't distinguish between winter and spring, and it won't break from that dormancy and begin to give off trees, or leaves, excuse me, and fruit. It's just sort of stuck in winter. So as much as I would like to maintain the illusion for the passers-by that we are good at this. There's really nothing we can do. If there was something we can do, we would do it. 
We haven't stopped caring. We want this tree to live. The trouble is the only remedy is a long, cold, dark winter. And we just have to wait for that to come. Your Father in Heaven has not given up on telling the story of you, nor will he ever. He cares about the pains, the trials, and the lifelessness that you feel and know. In fact, he has tasted it from the inside out. He has experienced it through the life of his own son. He makes promises to you about life that he means to bring forth from you. And sometimes the way that those promises are brought about is long, cold, and dark winters. And you have no say in how frigid those winters will be. And you have no say in how much yield they will bring. You are not the author of your life. You get no credit for the successes you enjoy, and it is not on you to bear the burden for the pains that you endure. They don't belong to you. You are not Lord of the seasons. You are a tree planted in the courtyard of your father. And though many dark winters may come, take heart. By faith, that tree's name is Christ Jesus. Do you think your father will abandon his own son? Never. And we are grafted into him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the security and the safety that we have in faith. We thank you that you are the author of our lives, that it's not on us to make it happen. Father, fill our hearts with trust and faith. Help us to fear you so that we would not fear when we are naked sticks or when the cold of winter comes or when we're embarrassed by our lack of fruit. Father, I pray for this church that we would be one that is secure in you even when we are naked to all passers-by. I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.